Welcome to the Settle the Matter podcast, where we have conversations and even disagreements at times. Grab your warm beverage of choice, take a seat, and let's get ready to settle the matter. All right, welcome back all. I'm sitting here with Xander. Uh, Xander's a Delta student I've come to know. We've had some fun discussions, some serious discussions, and I've engaged in some just general banter. Okay. <laughs> I really enjoy Xander's mind, openness, and love for investigating history and truth. And it's obvious that he also just enjoys chilling with people. So I want to start by just getting to know Xander a little bit more or letting you guys get to know Xander a little bit more before we dive into a philosophical question that will hopefully take us down several rabbit holes into some cool disagreements, agreements, and discussion. So let's start with a really basic question, Xander. So All right. where do you work? And tell me how you feel about your job currently. Okay. So um, hopefully McDonald's never sees this. I work at McDonald's. <laughs> I'm a, I work in the service sector. They usually, I'm the guy in drive-thru. I'm the guy who takes your money. And, uh, you know, or, <laughs> yeah, it's not a great job. Um, don't work at McDonald's. They pay decent competitively because otherwise no one would ever work there. Right. Um, but everything about that place is horrible. Okay. I have money though. <laughs> there you go. That, that'll be a nice segue in our discussion later though. The everything is horrible part anyway. Oh uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. <laughs> yep. All right. So tell me some interesting things about how you grew up, both in terms of logistics and worldview. Just anything interesting you want to share. All right. Well, so I I um I grew up most of my life in Texas. Uh, my family um we only settled down in Michigan a few years ago. We've been all over the U.S. Um, I up until recently I never really lived in a city for more than nine to twelve months. Wow. Um, and we were extremely poor up until recently as well. Um, a lot of remarks and stories I could make relating to that, but we rarely had what we needed. However, um, my dad worked his way up in government, he's a bureaucrat, and now we are in a very prosperous situation, which I'm happy about. Cool. Um, yeah, it's kind of the story of my life right there. So how do you think moving around has kind of affected your overall way that you approach ideas, your overall way that you approach life, people? Has it had an effect on you? It has had a great effect on me. Um, so... When you you can see the cultures of everywhere, and you realize people, people all around, you know, from the rural south to the urban north, are always kind of the same in many ways. Sure. And um, all people like to di- people like to differentiate themselves from each other, but we're all the same humans. You know, we're all hedonistic. We all have ambition, all of that, and um, it's really shown me just um. I think if people talked more, people would realize everyone kind of agrees on most things. Okay. Um, yeah. No, that's cool. <laughs> so I know you have a passion in particular for World War One history. Yeah, yeah. And history in general. Yes, definitely. Can you tell me why? Okay, so, all right, my general, like, if I had to generalize my interest, it's probably from like the 1820s all the way through the Victorian era into World War One, And the reasoning for this is because it's probably the most relevant part of world history. It's where modern countries and civilizations were built, yet no one ever really cares about it. 
Um, the only, in the American education system, the only part of that we ever, any American ever even thinks about or knows about is the Civil War. And even then, that's extremely lackluster. I bar- they barely taught me shit on that. Um, uh, yeah. World War One, in particular, I find interesting because it is possibly the most industrialized war in history. It's the only war in history in which every power participant in that war was a wealthy empire in the height of its existence. And they all fought to the death, to their own destruction. Um, it, I just think it's extremely fascinating uh, how these societies evolved and how they all collapsed after World War I. Yeah, that's very cool. And I, I mean, you're, I don't want to rat out your age, but you're 17, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess a question I have then is the average 17-year-old is scrolling TikTok. Okay? Yeah. Or, or, you know, listening to Taylor Swift. Yeah. What makes you fascinated with, you know, generations of people that came hundreds of years before you? Like, beyond the fact that it's fascinating as an, as an experiment of thought, is there something about you that on a deeper level that makes you fascinated with empires and leaders and wars? Or have you not thought that deeply <laughs> about it, I guess? I mean, I haven't... I guess the fascination all originates from the fact that um, so my family is a family of Russian immigrants, right? And they came over to America in three waves. And two of those waves were in between the world wars um, because of the Russian Civil War. And uh, the what originally got me into this is wanting to trace back the path of that part of my family. Oh, that's cool. Um, I'm part of the third wave, which is uh, even m- more in the future beyond that. Yep. Uh, and the figures in this are people we are that are very unknown in society. I guess the reason I have interest in these past histories is because how thing how politics worked back then was so different from how it is today, and how people interacted with each other on a global scale was just so unbelievably different. And it makes me wonder what are new ways we could hmm. politically interact with each other. What are new ways the world could work together, or work against each other? Um, because human interaction is always evolving. Right. So you have an interest in the in the philosophical, not only philosophical, but political kind of under... You're interested in the, in the politics and the philosophy behind things because you're also interested in progress for the future. Yeah. And interested in how you play a role in that. Or yeah. Or all of us play a role in that. I think the most important thing for how prosperous society is is how it's ran. I think technology, religion, culture, and the economy they all influence that but inherently how do people run themselves you know what principles do they abide by what are they willing to do and not to do i think that's the most core fundamental of how humans operate and it's what distinguishes us from most other species no species has as complex of a system of running things as we do sure yeah i mean partially partially due to our intelligence yeah you know and a variety of other things yeah our communication yep so I also know you're a voracious reader. Oh yeah, <laughs> of all kinds of nonfiction and fiction, I presume. Yeah. Well, I don't hear as much about your fiction musings as I do <laughs> about your nonfiction musings, but I presume you read all kinds of yeah. things. Tell me where that thirst comes from, like. And I also know that you're not really big into social media, other than Discord. Yeah. Right. So, like, what what is what's given you a fascination for that? So, okay. Um, a good example is I was studying the American Civil War, and I want to know Ulysses S. Grant. Who's this guy? Because he's an extremely important man in this war, right? In fact, sure. arguably the most important figure of it. 
So what could I do? Well, I could Google Wikipedia, in which they're constantly changing it every day because of people having their political biases, and which is entirely unreliable. Or I could go to the bookstore and grab a book of his own autobiography, his own written memoirs. The only way for you to know a historical person is their memoirs and their autobiography. Now, of course, they have biases for how they, you know, present themselves to the world. And part of it is trying to figure out these biases. But you get to the core of that actual person, that person's written word. And um, that's, I mean, I read two types of books. It's either a fantasy medieval book, because, you know, it's entertaining, or the memoirs of old figures. I almost never read a history book written by a modern professor, because most of them I find I end up not trusting after really looking into it. Sure. Um, Sure. And the... I it's just Ulysses S. Grant, who was actually the first memoir I read. And from there, I realized there's so many more I can read and so many more people. And you can dive into the minds of these guys who died 400 years ago. And that's that's awesome. You know, I think any of us, any person in all of society would like to talk to a person from 200 years ago. I think they'd find it an interesting experience. Yeah, perhaps a lot more interesting than the people we're talking to today. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Especially on TikTok. Um, <laughs> I avoid social media just because I watched... I I grew up in high school, middle school, where people just got entirely absorbed into the social media realm and in the process abandoned their real life, didn't have any friendships, didn't really progress anywhere. So I've always made it a personal policy just to avoid as much social media as possible. That's kind of cool. I enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a... I think we're finding out in our society, I don't know that everyone's finding this out, but I'm I'm, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, there's no substitute for in-person relational connectedness. You know, just all yeah. of the dynamics of an actual physical relationship, the nonverbals, the laughter, the 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 mannerisms. I mean, just just all the ways that we kind of connect with one another and how there's there's a lot of language that isn't can't be text-based. Yeah. In terms of how we communicate with one another. And um as I as I grow up, you know, I'm in college now, right? It used to be every single friend I knew had a bunch of social media, but around a third of the people I interact with on a daily basis uh, also share my policy of just avoiding social media. Um, and I think it's catching on. People of my generation are realizing it's just damaging. It only damages your social life. It only damages your emotions. Okay. No, I think it's a good insight. I think there's a lot of people in my generation who view that, but it's kind of interesting to see some people that are that grew up in the quote unquote internet generation or the social media generation actually start to recognize some of the emptiness that comes from overexerting yourself in that environment. Yeah. All right, let's get into a discussion about a philosophical question. I'm hoping that we can go down some cool rabbit trails. All um, right. I'm going to read something by Albert Camus and to the listeners who don't know a lot about Albert Camus, he's a... He's a famous French philosopher. Um, he was he lived between 1913 and 1960. Um, he was not only a French philosopher; he was an author. He was a dramatist. He was a journalist. He was a political activist. Um, he won a Nobel Prize in literature in the 50s. Um, at the age of 44, ironically, he died two years later. He's the second youngest recipient in history, by the way, of of that Nobel Prize. Camus was born in French Algeria. Um, he spent his childhood in a very poor neighborhood, and he studied philosophy at the University of Algiers. And so that's a little bit of his history. One of the 
the things he was most famous for musing on in his philosophical writings was the concept of the absurdity of all things. Uh, the idea that life is absurd. He was, a lot of people labeled him something called an existentialist. He hated being called an existentialist. But ironically, he, uh, he kind of is an existentialist in my opinion, but that's a much bigger discussion we could have on another podcast. But what I find ironic about Camus is that he, he believed in the concept of absurdity and ironically, he died in a car crash. <laughs> you know, he died in an absurd way. Yeah. Um, but this is one of my favorite quotes by Camus, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting quote to discuss, and then we'll have some follow-up questions too. This is Camus' quote. This is from one of his writings. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of all philosophy. All the rest, whether or not the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or 12 categories, comes afterwards. So let's just, let's just get into this. Like, what are your initial kind of like thoughts on that question? The most important or truly serious philosophical problem is the problem of suicide, judging whether or not life is or is not worth living. What do you think? Well, I guess I could understand if that question was disputed, that it would be the most important question. But that's like saying is the most important question, should we breathe or should we not breathe? Because I think the vast majority of people ultimately deep inside think life is worth living. And most people, if they, most people who end up committing suicide only do after years and years of depression or whatever trauma tearing down upon them and it's not at all intuitive um it's an interesting thought though i uh personally i think there's never been a compelling argument for suicide okay. um and 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 i've ever heard so i don't think it's that much of a question i think it is i think i think so let's 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 frame it maybe in a different way so would you agree that you and i have had pretty comfortable lives yeah yeah, I mean, relative to... Relative to the rest of the world, yeah. Yeah, relative to the rest of the world currently, maybe, but also relative to a lot of people in history. Yeah. Who were facing a lot of, a lot more, uh, what I'd call, quote-unquote, random death, right? Like, yeah, this plague could come through and wipe out our whole village, or... Random bandits come and kill Random them. bandits coming in, raping and pillaging my village and killing me. Yeah. Right? Uh, so, we, we don't deal with a lot of those daily anxieties and fears, do we? Or no. Well... We, Car driving, that is, you know, amount of car crashes, deaths are probably surpassed amount of random bandit raid deaths in the medieval era. So per, per capita, I doubt it. Maybe. Hey. Yeah, you might be right. You might yeah. be right because random bandit death. But the, the all know. the different ways that you can be killed Yeah. when you live in the... Mostly medical, you know, random bubonic plague comes in. It's just... No. Yeah. Or you're at the mercy <laughs> of weather for crops. Oh, yeah, true. Right? Famines, true. droughts... There's a lot of like things that are outside of your control. Living yeah. in a Western country in America, a lot of other people in the world are living in more of that random randomness than we feel like we're living in. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I would agree. Because we, we have a lot of control because of our power and our wealth. Yeah, we, we're the greatest country 
history has yet seen. Arguably. Yeah, and we have tremendous resources. And we not only have our resources, but we have the resources of a lot of other countries that don't even get to benefit from their own resources. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, do you think that a lot of people in the world or in the history of the world run into a season of life where they question whether life is worth living anymore? Whether they commit suicide or not, do you think that there's a lot of people in the history of the world who've dealt with that or currently do? Hmm. I, so it's hard to speak because the only person I truly know is myself. If Correct. Um, but I would think every person who's lived a long and fruitful life, you know, who's lived to age 40 or so at least, has at one point asked themselves, um, is life worth living? Now, whether it goes anywhere, anything beyond that, you know, that varies. But I think it's a question everyone ends up asking because, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of suffering and a lot of things you have to get through in life. Yeah, and, and actually, the, the the amount of like suffering that people tangibly experience is is widely different. Correct. Yeah, yeah. You know, the amount of emotional trauma, physical trauma. I mean, we sat in argument club just recently, and we had a discussion about abuse. Do you remember that discussion we had? Yeah. Where somebody brought up the question, should we forgive someone who abuses us? Yeah. And it was shocking. Like, this is just a random sample of argument club people. And there were, what, eight or nine of us there, and six of the people shared really significant stories of sexual and physical abuse. Yeah, me and you, I think, were the only people who actually had a stable parenthood. Right. By the sounds of it. So I wonder sometimes if we miss a lot of the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if we miss a lot of those, those dynamics. A lot of it, trauma is relative. So to a person whose entire life has been rough, um, having, for example, I know a person who lives in southern Ukraine and he's basically constantly ridden by gang life, right? And um, to him, he doesn't really care when the random tragedy happens because it's just a, it's an annual occurrence. Um. So despite the fact he a lot of traumatic events happen, he's basically as depressed as anyone in the West is because people get used to it and they usually adapt to it. So it could be argued throughout all of history, everyone's kind of been the same level of depression because, um, you know, how depressed they are is just, it's relative. It, it, it's not an exact metric. People of, can be trained by suffering. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, there's not an exact metric of trauma that ever impacts anyone. Right. So, but if I, if I did get into that season of extreme depression, despair, I mean, marriage falls apart, kids are estranged from me, massive tragedy happens, I lose a child. I mean, people encounter all kinds of tragedies that I think bring them to the brink of depression. Yeah. You know? Yeah. uh, And I look at, you know, what, what is it in your mind that if you got to that point, which I think there's a, we could make an argument that a lot of people in history, and not only a lot of people, a lot of people groups have faced extremely dire circumstances. Yeah. The number of stories is endless in history. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> is what in those moments makes life worth living to you? Well, or would. I mean, granted, yeah. you and I maybe not have experienced something this. Yeah. Maybe you've never experienced despairing of your own life. Yeah. I don't know that I have. I mean, I have had a period of time with extreme depression where I did despair of life. But it's not been a major part of my life. Whereas I think there's people in history where it has. So in those moments, what is it that makes life worth living? Because I think what Camus is trying to do here, just before you answer, is that I think what Camus is trying to do here is point out the idea that a worldview 
or a sense of meaning and purpose is only as good as its application to the entire reality that we live in. Yeah. So just because it applies to Xander doesn't make a, co- a coherent or motivating worldview, right? Yeah. It has to be applicable to all of reality to be a comprehensive worldview. So how would someone in that situation, what would, what would make life worth living for them? I mean, of course it'll vary for every single person. Um, I think a lot of times it's a loved one. Life is worth living because if you stopped living, it would hurt your loved one. In fact, I know a couple suicidal people, and the only thing that's keeping them alive is the fact that they don't want to hurt their loved ones. Well, that's um, a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I think. Uh, for me personally, it would be the fact that I know pain is very easily forgotten and pleasure is very easily remembered. Arguably, that's so nature, you know, so people keep getting pregnant. That's probably the natural explanation for that, but makes it so I'm not really worried about what pain I'm going through because I know I'm going to forget it. It's really hard to remember pain. That's interesting. I don't know that it is. Like I, I'm not sure I agree with that because I think that I think people who go through extreme trauma have a f- extremely difficult time forgetting that trauma. I I mean that's why people will be sexually abused at 2 years old and for the rest of their life they're dealing with trauma from that even though they may not even remember it. They may not even consciously remember the act. But there's notable psychological differences between a person who is abused, sexually abused at two years old, and the person who isn't. You know, there's documentable. I don't know that pain is easily forgotten, that pleasure is remembered. I think in my life, I remember pain more than pleasure. Like, like spikes in pain. Yeah. I remember probably equally as much or more so than spikes in pleasure. Possibly. I don't know. I'm not sure I agree on that. We have PTSD, right? Which yeah. kind of like... Hard, hard for me to even know myself because I'm only 17, right? No. I've yeah. barely lived a life yet. Because like you look at like a soldier will do one tour of duty in Iraq, right? And he'll have PTSD for the rest of his life. Yeah. So 11 months, let's say that's a tour of duty, 11 months of trauma lasts a lifetime <laughs> to the point where all of modern science has not yet figured out how to remedy PTSD fully. Yeah. And in fact, now we're entertaining, you know, there's a big movement. Are you familiar with the movement to use hallucinogenic drugs to try to treat PTSD? No, but I know... Um, yeah, that's a large movement right now because we're just, we're grasping at straws, you know, to yeah. try to understand how to handle yeah. this. I know marijuana was a huge thing for a while, trying sure. to use marijuana yeah. for PTSD. But yeah, perhaps you're right. Uh, maybe that assertion was not correct. I, uh, for the loved ones, though, I think that is a big reason why most suicidal people keep on going. Because, you know, they deeply care for the people who care for them, and they don't want to hurt them by hurting themselves. Sure. But if you're but if you're going to die, and obviously this is where faith comes into perspective and all these things, but not just faith, but it doesn't even have to be faith. It could be any kind of mystical understanding, is that if you're thinking about, if you're in extreme trauma, let's say something relatively huge happened to you, if you are gonna, if you're contemplating suicide, um, and you don't believe that there's any like cosmic consequence for you committing suicide, you just think, okay, if I commit suicide, my life is over. Yeah. In your worldview, I I presume that you believe that that's the end of your consciousness and existence. Or am I wrong on that? Possibly. My worldview. Well, you're is, not sure. My you not sure. You can't know. Death is that one thing that humans will never be able to figure out because there's no way to bring someone back from the dead. Um, so unless of course Jesus raised from the dead, 
<laughs> well, debate. yeah, that that, it, that is if we can. Well, even then, if we could find a reasonable way to prove Jesus rose through dead, which let's assume we do, yeah. we still don't have a direct uh, phone line to Jesus, so we wouldn't really know what he said about it. Um, there is no way for us to really investigate post death, so I think any explanation of it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Well, if the if you can't investigate post post-death i i agree like it, when you say investigate you mean scientifically investigate yeah you know right? uh, collect data yeah i mean if someone death. if someone in history actually did rise from the dead whether it's jesus or another person they're long dead now so <laughs> wouldn't you agree that it'd be hard to investigate even if it happened yeah right because let's say you rose from the dead 12 years ago yeah right and i wasn't there to witness it yeah and there were there was a finite amount of witnesses to your resurrection. Right? Yeah. I still have to choose to believe a historical event, right? So there's no way to, because not there's no way that there's any scientific proof necessarily that you for sure died. Yeah. Beyond a complete shadow. I mean, there, there you could always shed doubt on any scientific research or evidence. <laughs> People's yeah. heart can stop for long periods of time, so on and so forth, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so. There's, so, yeah, it's extremely flawed in so many ways. Just. Yeah, but but I think we can we can ask the question of if if there if if I believe that there was nothing after death, then why would I care what my loved ones think, or why would I care? Why why would it be a negative thing for me to just want to end my pain? What do you think? So I've got tremendous amount of pain for whatever reason. Why would it be um, a bad thing for me to end that? I suppose because. We all have this innate feeling, whether it's true or untrue, that guilt will transcend death. So that, what do you that, mean we have a, a, a feeling that guilt will transcend? What's that mean? The We have a feeling that, or we innately believe that when we die, for some reason we still comprehend our consciousness, uh, you know, thinking about our life decisions. And we would, right. and we worry about feeling guilty for our, our family members. Um, perhaps... That means something. There's a you know a spiritual spiritual realm you can go to or whatever. Or maybe it's just this weird innate feeling that we can't explain. But I think that's the main reason, right? But there's definitely probably some people who don't necessarily experience that enough to actually tip the scales in life being worth continuing to live. Yeah. Right? So and suicide is a relatively significant problem. I'm interested. I just watched the new Godzilla minus one movie and all right. One of the things it addresses in there is the kamikaze pilots, right? And so we have this concept of the kamikaze pilot. Now, you're familiar with the whole idea of a kamikaze pilot, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, they thought that there was uh, uh, an honor in suicide, right? Yeah. Um, Dying for the emperor. Yep. And it goes back to also the samurai and so on and so forth in the Japanese culture. But then you have the suicide bombers in the radical movements of today. Yeah. So what do you think they think they're gaining from suicide in those situations? Well, their distinction is they wouldn't feel guilty about it because they know they have a good justification for it, or at least to them a good justification because they're dying for a cause. Correct. And that feeling of, you know, you, the idea that you would feel guilty for your family members' uh, despair that doesn't that goes away when you believe that your family members could be proud of you, for example, sure. or that you know you know that you're dying for something that is right. 
So all every all notions against suicide go away when you believe it's for a good cause. Sure, but but then you look at um, so if I if I'm dying for some deity or for some noble cause, yeah, right, or at least what you believe to be noble, what you believe to be noble, correct? Then dying just strictly to get out of my pain is that a noble cause to you? What do you think? Well, I think I haven't thought about it, but I believe society would would think that it's not noble because usually a noble cause is defined by something that you believe will benefit more than just you. And if you're dying to relieve yourself of your own pain, that only benefits you. And in fact, it harms your loved ones, people who care about you, your friends. Um, But then they could just commit suicide in response to the pain they're feeling from your suicide, and they'd also be relieved of their suffering. Well, that pushes a problem down the line. You know, then we have a whole new wave of people who are depressed and miserable. In fact, we might end up having a mass suicide in the entire world. Yeah, yeah, that that would not (laughs) that would not be ideal. Um, Why not? I I personally don't want to commit suicide. So I'm certainly anti-suicide. I just want to go on the record (laughs) as saying that. Yeah, I'm just we're entering into a philosophical discussion here. But like, yeah, I mean if. If my loved one committed suicide, which actually a couple of them have, have um, it it hurts, but it, for me, it's not enough for me to commit suicide. Uh, the right. the pain goes away after a couple months or so. It's not that long term. Um, so you know, it wouldn't be a chain reaction of suicide. It'd just be a bunch of people feeling miserable. So uh, since a couple people can get past their own problems. Right. Uh, you know, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. That quote that keeps getting thrown around. I mean, yes. that is what it is. Right. But it's, it's, it's an idea of is if you, if you cosmically believe that death is the end, if you really believe that, yeah, I don't know that suicide doesn't really make sense. I'm not really a hundred percent sure on that because, um, I disagree with it morally still because of what you said. Um, it's going to affect other people around you. It seems inherently selfish, yeah. Right. I mean, for me to just say, look, I'm just, I, I don't want this pain anymore. I'm going to eliminate this pain by committing suicide. Yeah. But in a completely like, in the world of nothing's after death, and I'm fully convinced of that, I don't really see why that would matter to me when I just have, am full of pain. Yeah. Maybe the guilt would outweigh the pain. And so I decide to stay alive. But what if it doesn't? Then I commit suicide. I no longer have any consciousness, so I'm not even aware of what happened. So it's not like I'm going to have ongoing guilt if that's my worldview, right? Yeah. If if that is your worldview, that would be the case if it ends up being true. However, there is a fact that one thing that most humans can relate to is we can't comprehend not having a consciousness. Correct. We, we can't we can't comprehend the end of our consciousness. Yeah, we can't maybe. comprehend stopping thinking. We can't comprehend nothing, which um, if that worldview... Indeed's proved to be indeed proves to be true, then well, 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 yeah. Then there there would be no real reason not to commit suicide if you think that's the only way to fix your pain. Because I think you nailed something there to me in my thinking that I want to discuss a bit more, which is that you brought up the idea that I think one of the things that keeps people from suicide is I mean people will use methamphetamines, cocaine, alcohol, I mean sex right? To alleviate pain. Mm-hmm. But suicide's another level, isn't it? Yeah. Because in suicide, I think you're right. Something that comes into the mind of a lot of people in suicide is a concept of guilt. 
Yeah. I think guilt comes in those other areas too, being an alcoholic or being a drug addict or... Yeah, for some people, for some situations. Probably for the same reason, right? Because like, I'm, if I'm an alcoholic, I'm harming my loved ones. Yeah. If I'm a drug addict, I'm harming my loved ones, right? Yeah. If I'm engaging in illicit sex, I'm harming people, right? Like, yeah. there's this idea of... I think that, that that idea of the conscience does come into it, but I think that that's a big part of what... What's one of the layers that Camus is trying to get at is... This is why it's a truly philosophical problem because <laughs> the 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 simple answer of most of us don't really want to commit suicide and it's a short term answer to a long term problem is a valid thing but but the thing that actually keeps you alive in the moment when you're in extreme despair yeah like your complete misery yeah i mean imagine a scenario of anyone in history you want to whose wife was taken away by some raiders and raped and his kids were killed, and he's left all by himself. Yeah. And he's drinking himself into a tizzy because of his depression. He's enslaved to a foreign government, whatever you want to add. Yeah. And he's thinking about killing himself, and something in those moments, like, makes his worldview sharper, doesn't it? Yeah. It does, like, sharper <laughs> than your and I's worldview. Yeah. Our worldview isn't tested. We're sitting here in an argument. <laughs> right now in a nice place yeah musing on philosophical ideas but we're not really certain if our worldview is going to work in extreme tragedy until it happens yeah right yeah we, we've all grown up privileged and we're talking about extremely unprivileged people right so. so the way we connect with those things and one of the reasons i wanted to interview you is because you try to connect with those stories in history which i find fascinating because i think that that is one of the way it's the best way that we can start to get outside of our worldview and view ourselves in the third person yeah. Right. And so a question I have then is, where does that concept of guilt come from in your mind? Why am I stuck on s some manner of selflessness and guilt? Like what? Yeah. It sounds, it seems counterproductive to my survival in a way or my pleasure in a way. I mean, sometimes it's counterproductive to my survival. Sometimes it's counterproductive to my pleasure. Yeah. So why, wh where does that come from? Well, so we, of course we can. We don't know, and we might not ever be able to know. But at a personal level, I believe it's because there's some sort of... I don't think the mind is everything to our consciousness. Um, I think there's a spirit, too. Uh, we all have a kind of spirit which transcends our the nerve connections in our brain. That, I think, is the only thing that really, when thinking about it, distinguishes us from robots and other, you know, artificially intelligent things. Sure. It's, uh, you know, some spiritual some spiritual essence that we can't explain. And I think guilt is an inherent part of that. Um, why it's a part of that? Well, there's a lot of questions as to why everything, you know, why is that rock on the floor? I don't know. There might be a reason, there might not. It might just be randomness or it might just be there inexplicably. But I think it's just a spirit. We all have a spiritual connection. That's interesting. So, so I'm going to cite something that Jesus says, which I think is comes okay. from my worldview, just because I want to challenge you. Of course. Is that um, Jesus says to a group of Jewish leaders, he says, I did not come for the healthy, but the sick. And he also said in another place that he did not come for the righteous, which he meant, I'm not going to explain the whole context of the thing, the self-righteous, but the sinner. You know, and we know the term sinner. Sinner means people that recognize that they do things wrong. 
So he's yeah. not literally talking about a righteous person and a sinner there. If you look at the context, he's talking about people who are self-righteous, who believe they can do no wrong. Yeah. And then he's talking about people who recognize that they are imperfect and do do things wrong. Yeah. And the other one's healthy and sick. And and so I think Cam Camus on to something similar to what Jesus says, in my opinion, which is that it's in the moments of our sickness and our recognition of our imperfection that we have the sharpest understanding of what's real. So if you think if, if Jesus views himself as a disseminator, whether you believe he's a deity or a great teacher or whatever, if he views himself as a disseminator of a good worldview, yeah, and then he says that the ones he's coming for to communicate with and to interact with are those who have a recognition of their sickness yeah, or their pain, yeah, suffering, and their imperfection. To me, that's kind of parallel, even though Camus, I believe, was an atheist. It's like a parallel between Jesus and Camus, which is that yeah. in your darkest moments, you, you might be getting more clarity about whether or not your worldview works or not. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. What do you think of that? I mean, do you, do you sense that in some of your darkest moments, you've had your worldview tested? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and how I so? have. So, admittedly, it varies in how the moment's dark. If it's like um, a moment of emotional betrayal or something like that, usually I'm pretty fuzzy-brained. Um, I don't think I'm able to comprehend much of anything properly. But, um, for example, there's a short stint in middle school where I was just genuinely suicidal. I was considering suicide. And that's when I just realized everything I thought about, like, Every way in which I thought about life and what it was worth was just wrong. And I need to reconsider hmm. why I'm living. And that is probably the greatest moment of growth I've had in my life yet. Interesting. Um, I, I do agree. When you're in your dark moments, you have to actually reconsider. You can't believe in something just to believe in it, which most things people believe in, they're believing for the sake of believing in. You actually have to logically think about things and think about your reasons and everything to life. And test whether or not the things, the ways you're conceiving of reality are actually real. Yeah. Like there's the world of ideas, <laughs> right? Where I can create these utopian ideas and ideals in my head. And then I actually yeah. like bump up against other humans. I bump up against suffering. I bump up against pleasures. I bump up against marriage, children, whatever. Yeah. And I start to realize I need to adapt my ideals. Yeah. And I need to adapt my conception of what's real. It's interesting because you said earlier, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. You said earlier that you thought that this question wasn't a significant question. But you just (laughs) said in your own life that that it was a significant, when you were actually contemplating suicide, that that was one of the biggest seasons of change in your life. Yeah. So which is it? (laughs) Well, you know, it it may have been one of the uh, biggest seasons of change in my life relative but comparing, you know, that short, like, season is, I think, basically the summer. So that short, like, you know, five months. Comparing yeah. that to, you know, the other 17 years I've lived, I think I, you know, it's still a small percentage. But it was extremely important at the time. And relative to any other select five months of my life, it would have been important. So name so. one significant way that that time framed how you now rethink the way you investigate knowledge, truth, and ideas. Can you think of a significant way that it changed that? Well, during that time, it changed most of my thoughts on anything, on things from politics to social uh, 
relationships. Okay. Um, politically, it's when I realized that every idea I have about, you know, uh, a well-structured, um, I was Marxist before then, sure. uh, a well-structured uh, command economy and a government which, you know, organizes the people the most efficiently would still be extremely depressing. Um, and that's when I went on the track of where I am now. And also it's where I realized that friendship, just because friends are loyal doesn't mean they're good friends. Hmm. That w- Explain that a little bit. The, if a person is simply just loyal to you, they, that, that won't help me at all in life because they might be. If they're if they're loyal, that's great. But they also need to have intelligence, and they also need to be people who I can grow from. And if I'm hanging out with a bunch of people who will never grow and who are eternally stuck in some hole, uh, just even if they are loyal, it's not a good friendship. I'm not gaining anything from this. That was actually the main revelation I got from that moment was the fact that I need to actually pick friends who would help develop my own self. Um, and who wouldn't just, you know, hold me down. Sure. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier um, the idea of how there's something lingering in us. You, you, you kind of like alluded to the idea that you kind of believe that that human beings have kind of some sort of, sort of spirit or soul yeah. or some other existence that transcends just the biological definitely chemical reactions in our brain. And We're clearly different from every other thing on this planet, more yeah. so than most things. Correct. Like we have a moral conscience, we have an appreciation of beauty, we have the ability to imagine yeah. things that don't currently exist and then to create them. And we, we've talked yeah. about some of these things before. Yeah. We're very special. But if there's but one of the, the one of the things, a couple things that we're really are different about us is that we we do have a sense of consequences, right? Moral yeah. consequences, right? And that's that's part of what we're talking about here with suicide is it draws out a lot of like that when I want to commit suicide is when I really have to ask the question of, I ask lots of different questions if I'm in that ideation, which I have been in suicidal ideations before I'm asking lots of different questions about is my life worth living? Am I, do I have value? Yeah. Do I have a purpose on the earth that transcends just my own current view of my purpose, which is I don't have a purpose. And I just want to get out of this pain. Yeah. Um, but I also have a sense of cosmic consequences, which yeah. is what you addressed. Um, my loved ones are going to be affected. I don't want them to be affected. <laughs> I don't really care about what my non-loved ones think. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I don't. Which is interesting. So why mm-hmm. do I only care about what my loved ones think? Well, why do I not care about my non-loved ones think? Why do I not care about what the newspaper says? Why do I, you know, and so on and so forth. Maybe yeah. I do care about that. Like maybe I'm like a Japanese kamikaze. I believe that I'm getting some type of eternal honor in, in history after this point. My yeah. name will ring throughout history or something like that, even though I'm dead and unconscious. Yeah. So do you think there is a cosmic consequence? And what are the consequences that when you have a moral dilemma, you don't, let's say you can get away with something. Let's say you could be a great bank robber. Yeah. And you know, you could probably get away with it. Yeah. What stops you from doing things like that? Like what, what, what is the source of the guilt? Have you meditated upon that? Or what's the source of the guilt for not committing suicide and those types of things? It's hard to know. We can't know. And if, 
if I ever in if I ever think of some way in which all humans in which explains why all humans are guilty, for example, maybe some transcendent moral code or something like this. Whenever I innovate some idea like that, there's always a counterexample of there are psychos in the world, and there are then there are people with no empathy who are totally willing to do that for for their own self gain, and they're always a counterexample to any idea of a universal explanation for guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Yeah, so I don't think there is an explanation. It might vary person to person, or it's simply beyond our understanding. Well, it's definitely beyond our understanding. No, I think you can create a... I mean, I think in my worldview, I can't think of a counterexample. We've kind of argued about it. I think that it's it's difficult even if you look at the sociopath or the psychopath, right? Yeah. Those two examples. Um, it's difficult to... Um, understand first of all I don't know that they're a pure counterexample to the idea of a moral conscience and the reason I'm not sure they're a pure counterexample is is we can't see other thoughts yeah right we only see their actions yeah so I don't know that they serve as a proof text quote unquote text against the idea of humans having a moral conscience um possibly I mean we don't know what they were like when they were two it's very difficult or one yeah uh, we, we don't even they don't have language they don't have communication well, Did they feel guilty about disobeying their parents? That that is actually that brings me to an interesting thought. Um, most kids uh, are born what we would consider psychopaths or um, unempathetic. Empathy is usually something um, parents have to teach to their kids. I mean, a perfect example is well, you you don't ever. I guess I can't really explain it with words, but um, I have a little brother, and you know we had to teach him to, you know, apologize and feel sorry for, you know, breaking another kid's toy, which otherwise he just didn't really care, right? Most of the time you have to teach that to people. So it could be argued that's just a cultural thing, and empathy is simply cultural, and it's just one of those cultural phenomena which have uh, overtaken the entire world. Yeah, it's, it's hard to view it as just cultural because I think that, you know, I raised two kids, and I've, obviously I've been around a lot of children, and most children from a very young age have a concept of guilt. Possibly. I mean, guilt in the sense that when they do something that I guess you can make the argument that their parents view is wrong. Yeah. They feel guilty. They, they get a, even a look on their face. They, they try to hide it. They try to do it yeah. behind closed doors. Um, and even if, it, even if you're going to make the argument that morality is completely a nature versus, or sorry, a nurture versus a nature argument. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, it still begs the question of where did it originally come from, right? So, like, it, it's like yeah. there's the nurturing had to, even if it's a nature argument. Okay. There had to be a first cause, really. I mean, because where did the first human who had that nurtured into them yeah. get it nurtured from? Yeah. So, like, it's it's just kicking the can down the road in some ways. You're just kicking the can down the road for as an explanation. Yeah, it, that is definitely true. But um, I guess from the Christian standpoint, um, is somewhat related the idea that there is a God that created the world. I think is also kicking the can down the road because then what is this God? You know, was he created? Uh, how did he come to be? Was he just simply always there? Because that seems like, I mean, the reason for the existence of the God is to explain something else than we simply have been here. Um, I think um, there are so many examples in which kicking the can down the road is a side effect of an explanation. And that's also why I believe the universe is infinite. I think you can just 
keep on going back. I don't know where morality originated or where that original nurturing of that came. Um, I don't even know if it originated with humans. It could have been something proto-human. Uh, but I I think there's a lot of counterexamples to people with no empathy and the idea that there is a transcendent universal code. Um, it just doesn't work with that. Well, I think whether there's a transcendent universal code uh, that... I mean, the the trans there is a reality that not everyone has a clear concept of moral conscience. That is real. Yeah. Whether there's a transcendent code that will or does pass judgment upon that reality is a whole different question. Fair. Those are two different questions. So, like, so like, if I look at you said about the creator, I think that you said. Uh, so we've talked about the idea of a meta narrative or a story that explains all stories, right? And yeah. Um, as a Christian, I believe that there is a meta narrative. There's a story that explains all stories, and we understand we understand reality oftentimes as humans in, in the concept of story. Stories are deeper than propositional truths. I mean, yeah. What I mean is, I can say the propositional truth to you. Uh, if you save money, then you will be able to. Uh, buy yourself a nice car in five years. It's a propositional truth. Yeah. But if I tell the story of how someone was able to work, live, uh, get to a point where they didn't have to have a debt to buy a car, and you read that story and you listen to the story of that individual's lives, you get like a deeper understanding of how precisely you would save and yeah. work and live to do that. Stories have all these layers of truth and interconnected truths yeah. that intersect with the real world, with the struggles and the, the variables that can't be described and quantified with systematic logic. They're a lot more meaningful, for right. sure. So even with the idea that God, you brought up the idea of God being, if he's the primary cause or the, or the first cause, and he kind of made us in a certain way, or she made us, or it made us, however you want to conceive of it, yeah. then then uh, I already have a concept for how God could not have an origin. We have it in mathematics. I All mean, right. even, even apart from God, we have a concept of infinity. And mathematicians spend a lot of their time in higher-level mathematics discussing the concept of infinity. Yeah. No beginning, no end. I mean, you're familiar with the concept of infinity with a line. Yeah. A line is an abstract principle. With It's, it's a... It's a it's a defined quantity that has no beginning and no end. In some sense, we can't comprehend it. Yeah. Because we can't think outside time and space, but we intellectually can comprehend it. So it doesn't make, it makes sense to me that if a transcendent mathematical idea can be eternal. Yeah. Well, then why can't a transcendent being also be eternal? Because it's also a transcendent, it's also a thing outside of our universe. So it's not outside the realm of human understanding to imagine a God or a deity that has no beginning and no end and wasn't created. Possibly. I just, the idea of a thing being eternal, it's hard for me to um, understand that being true because of the fact that there's really no example of an object or an energy that we know of that just continues in its exact form eternally. It, well, every, every energy and matter changes constantly, and it's, so yeah. But again, you're looking at a, you're looking at that from a very modern perspective. Modern in the sense of you're looking at it in terms of matter and energy. Yeah. 
right? So you're not you're not thinking about that principle in terms of metaphysical ideas. True. Well, metaphysical right. ideas you can't observe uh, scientifically, and you can't record data upon. That's correct. So, which is one of the weaknesses of the scientific worldview. You know, yeah. is that is that we begin to be skeptical of metaphysical realities that are really obvious. You know, I mean, we've talked about this before, like metaphysical realities like love, justice, truth. Mathematics yeah. is a metaphysical idea. We've even talked about the idea of language. Language is a metaphysical idea. Yeah. Language is a representation of something real. I mean, it doesn't... Language itself is metaphysical. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that that is a flaw of science, but also... Is there a better alternative to science that would explain uh, not only metaphysical uh, things, but also just straight-up physical, observable things? We don't really have another formula for figuring out things besides a scientific method, not one that reliably works. So we kind of have to rely on what we have. Well, I'm not really certain on that because science is – if you bring science to the party – yeah. Right. What percentage, if you were to make a list of every human question that could ever be asked? Yeah. How long do you think that list would be? Infinite. Right. It'd be well. Be, it would be infinite. For because, every for every question, yeah. there's a follow up question. I maybe trillions and yeah. I yeah. Mean, okay. So if you if you were to list all of those questions that a human is capable of asking through the collective imagination of all people throughout history. Yeah. I think you and I would agree that science, the scientific method, isn't even set up to answer more than like a tiny percentage of those questions. Perhaps. Right. So like I look at the scientific, I mean, I have a wood shop. I look at the scientific method as a really important, you know, method for helping us to understand and to categorize ideas and to test them and repeat experiments and so on and so forth. So I'm I'm a very pro-science person. So hear me when I say that. Yeah. But I'm also asserting the idea that trying to use science to talk about the concept of love or justice or morality or God, the existence of God, when God is proclaimed to be something that exists outside of the universe and transcends the universe, which means that it wouldn't even make rational sense that we could investigate something that transcends matter and energy using the science that we have which investigates matter and energy (laughs) right so like so it does it just doesn't make sense so there's certain things that transcend um scientific discussion that doesn't imply that science isn't super useful it's just one of the tools in my wood shop yeah so you know it's the circular saw it's not the entire shop so what wood shop tool per se do you think could reliably and calculably explain these transcendent ideals like morality, love, etc.? Well, I think that there's a lot of uh, the only thing we can do as human beings, right, is we can try to understand reality by our experience and by our thoughts and by our observational yeah. powers, right? So I suppose our thoughts are just too complex to, you know, uh, put against each other, which is right. Our main so, problem. so one of the big things is that is is testimony is really powerful, right? Yeah. So like if if all humans testify to this common locus of ideas that define what love is, for example, yeah. right? Like we use words like love and hate. We don't agree yeah. completely on what the definitions of love and hate are. But yeah. there is kind of a locus, locus meaning like a body of ideas that we do agree upon with all these things. All right. 
common yeah. view of morality, right? We've talked Definitely. about it before. Yeah. Justice, love. We could list multiple different things. Yeah. And so to me, maybe that's an indication or there's a metric there a little bit that we're all observing kind of a similar reality. We're not all interpreting that reality exactly the same way, but we do have a common locus of beliefs that indicate that there's something really real about that metaphysical idea. Perhaps. I think God is one of those metaphysical realities that is almost undeniable because there's so many people throughout history who have testified to a deity or deities and testified a very similar um, conceptions of that deity. Yeah. That deity enacts justice. That deity has some kind of creative ability. That deity uh, has some kind of love and benevolence, has some kind of like anger, so on and so forth. And you could say, well, we're just personifying ourselves. We view ourselves as deity because we have all those things. Maybe. Yeah. But we do have a concept of that. And so I think that, that at least points to the idea that maybe there is something real about that. Perhaps. But it, but it also points to the reality that we don't all see that deity the same way. Right? We have different conceptions of deity. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the distinction between, for example, a, uh, a pagan god, like a, some, actually, just let's just say the Celtic god of the forest. Sure. Right? Compare that to, you know, a, a Hindu um, like Vijana or something. Yeah. They're, you know, they have extremely different interpretations. Sure. So, and they're always culturally based. Uh, if, when you remove culture from a deity of whatever area, um, Christianity is a funny exception to this, but when you remove culture from a deity, you really don't have anything anymore because it's always based off what that culture perceives. And it usually doesn't transcend beyond that culture. Now, why is Christianity an exception to that in your mind? Because, well, this is why Christianity is extremely fascinating, because it originated as this, like, Jewish cultural deity, which was, yep. you know, n- not much different than every other deity in which it was directly related to its own people. But it's evolved to the point where it kind of unites many, many drastically different peoples of the world. I mean, the largest Christian community in the world is in China, and <laughs> and the home of Christianity is in Italy, you know, uh, they are vastly different cultures, yet they all agree on this vague concept of a god. Perhaps that's just because Christianity doesn't specify many attributes of this god, or maybe it's because there's some ounce of truth. Who knows? Um, that, that is a strange aspect of that religion. Uh, the idea that there's always been gods and cultures, though, I don't think that really works as an argument, considering the fact of how different every god has been. Well, I think that the fact that that uh, you know, there's every culture has a concept of love, right? Yeah. But they all have a different view of what that love is. Yeah. So I is mean, it really a united concept of love, or is well, just this goes us ba- trying to find connections where it, there aren't any? Yeah, it kind of goes back to how Plato talked about the doctrine of the forms. Plato had a theory that there was a there was a form world where there's these ideals like justice and love and so on and so forth, and yeah, and we're all observing those things, but we're observing them kind of through dim glasses and in the shadows. Possibly. And so we all see them a little different, but what's certain is that they exist. We're just not, you know, our interpretation of their existence. So you can look at it. I think it's kind of an interesting argument to say, um, because we all have different views of God, that means there is no God. That's kind of a weird way of arguing because it actually is more rational in my mind to say, because everybody actually believes that a deity exists is a sign that a deity exists because it's really weird that you would everybody would have the same type of fantasy 
you know, that's even more, to me, that's less believable. So like when we all believe in a concept of, of morality and justice, of course, Adolf Hitler doesn't have the same view of morality and justice that I do. Yeah, right. though he still had his own personal views of morality and justice. So. He did, he did. But but he's kind of an outlier, right, to the normal view of morality and justice yeah. throughout human history. Definitely. Right. So like there's exceptions to these rules. There's, there's aberrations and re- people that are rebelling against those norms. Fair enough. But there is this general concept throughout human history of metaphysical principles that we could all name. Yeah. We even talk about depression as kind of a... We're trying to scientifically quantify depression, but we're having a hard time doing it. Yeah. Because it's hard to scientifically quantify. It's a metaphysical principle. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a testimonial aspect to depression, right? Like, yeah. you tell me you're depressed, and then I go look at your brain chemistry, right? <laughs> yeah. But I have to first believe that you're telling me what you're telling me is depression, but I don't even know what you're actually feeling because I'm not experiencing your And again, your depression reality. and trauma and all that is always relative to how, how many depressing and traumatic things you've experienced. So someone who's experienced a lot of depressing things, um, they might show a lot of signs of depression, but won't affect them the same way who, of someone who just had a small breakup and that's the only thing they've had bad happen to them in their life. Right. So, so I agree because, because everyone has a concept of a deity does not imply inherently that there is a deity. Yeah. I agree with that. And I also agree that because we have different views of the deity, that there is no complete congruous agreement on what this, this quote unquote deity or deities is like in American society. But a uniqueness of Christianity beyond the idea that, that I think Christianity is unique in the sense that it's the, it's the only major world religion I believe that's kind of like crossed a lot of cultural, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic barriers. Yeah, definitely. And national identities and so on and so forth. I think another uniqueness of Christianity is that Christianity thrives. And I think this is accurate. I have to really think about this, but I'm going to say it, and then maybe we can argue about it in this podcast another time. I think that Christianity might be the only religion or one of the only religions that thrives when the political powers that be are trying to eliminate it. It kind of tends to it kind of tends to multiply no matter what political powers or institutional powers or sociological movements tend to oppress it and try to eliminate it. Whereas a lot of other religions I see as a lot more historically um area specific or ethnically specific um generally speaking. Now, that's point one. Point two is Christianity is, is unique in the sense that the central figure of its worship yeah. was a human being. Yeah, well, so like we've I viewed, mean, half human. Well, not, not half. I mean, well, Christianity believes that Jesus was fully deity and fully man. He wasn't a demigod. Yeah. That's not the belief of Christianity, but that's a longer discussion about what that means. That's a paradox in a way. Yeah. But he was fully human and fully God. And so, like, I think that, you know, we actually worship a person who appeared in history who claimed they were a deity. Now, Islam doesn't do that. Yeah. For example, you know, Islam, Muhammad never claimed to be a deity. He claimed to be a prophet. You know, he was no different than Jeremiah or Abraham, you know, as a metaphor. Yeah. In the two religions. Uh, Joseph Smith, Mormonism, he didn't claim to be a deity. Yeah. Um, Siddhartha Gautama did not, in Buddhism, did not claim to be a deity. Yeah. So, 
the people that did claim to be deities were like the Roman emperors, or I don't know if they yeah. claimed to, they didn't always claim to be deities. Well, but, they claimed to be like second to deities, correct? So kind yeah. of godly, but not full god. Of. Yeah, they were a form of deity, but they weren't. There was one Roman emperor who wanted to be a full on god, and they stabbed him after that, so it didn't really work out. That's for him. correct. But a lot of the other people in history that have claimed to be a deity were were thought to be insane during yeah. their life, and yeah. and not remembered after their death. And not followed after and their death. So, in fairness, Jesus was thought of as insane by a lot of people during his life. Though, he did survive after death, for whatever that's worth, so. Yeah, his his movement for a guy who claimed to be a deity and who died as a criminal, his movement is pretty remarkable. Yeah. yeah. And especially since it, 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 it permeated the entire world. Now... It- it's either a long list of fortunate coincidences which allowed it to spread or some actual truth behind it. So, or it just resonates with how a lot of people view reality. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, it resonates with how a lot of people view reality. So I don't think I'm proving right now that the story of, you know, I don't even know if there is a concept of proof, honestly, when you're talking about these things. Like, yeah. we can't science. If, if there was a deity, it wouldn't make sense we could scientifically prove there was one. Yeah. Especially the Christian deity, because I believe the Christian deity sits outside matter and energy, sits outside the universe. So what will we use to prove it? Yeah. Like a, a ruler? <laughs> like a, I don't know, a tachometer? What will we use? You know, it's something that measures RPMs. Is God Does God have an RPM that I can measure? You know, are revolutions <laughs> per minute? Is he rotating yeah. around the universe? I don't even know what instrument I would use to measure God in order to prove that he exists. I'd argue logic. Using logic as an instrument. But logic, even logic, has axioms, right? Yeah. You, you can't have a logical conclusion without adopting some types of definitions or axioms. What well, would your axioms be? Well, a lot of it is just, so we know there are certain truths in the world, for example, those moral principles, and you just build off of those in order to see if what you know or what you think to know is true aligns with your ideas of belief. Um, so... so, so and- if there was a deity, forget the Christian God, forget the, the yeah. Allah, forget any of them. Which, if, for, the, for the record, I am willing to believe there is a deity. Okay. So let's say there is a deity. All right. So explain to me how that deity would reveal itself to you as being real in a way that you wouldn't doubt it or you wouldn't have some sort of grounds to doubt it. And the only thing I'm going to add to this is that this deity is, let's imply that this deity transcends the universe. Yeah. So that's the only thing I'm going to say. Okay. So how would you, how would this deity reveal itself to you to the, to the point where without any doubt, you believe that it's real? Or that I couldn't <laughs> shed doubt on your knowledge that it's real? Well... I guess I'm going to compare this to the idea of love. We know love is real because every person has experienced it and because every person can attest to it. If the if the deity gave some emotion to every human, and uh, or at least 99.99% of humans, and they could all attest to feeling its presence and knowing it was there, then it would be real. But in this country, at least, and definitely in Europe— and very prevalently in some other places, most of the population, if or at least a significant minority of the population, does not believe in the deity and cannot attest to any idea or feeling that there is this deity's essence nearby. So, it, yeah, 
Well, you'd agree that most people, and I mean, I certainly don't want to base the existence of a deity on Western society in this modern era. Yeah. You'd agree with that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to look more at all of human history and all of human experience, but, but I agree. Um, there's two things there that are interesting, one of which is how do you connect that feeling to the deity? That's one. And two, isn't it philosophically possible that this deity would only choose to reveal itself to some people? It is philosophically possible, but that's not really um, helpful when it comes to proving or disproving his existence. Well, it would be helpful for all the people that the God revealed itself to. Yeah. Though, <laughs> wouldn't be helpful to everyone else. Though, let's say you, let's say you were a god, right? And yeah. you made this network of self-autonomous creatures yep. that, who interact with each other, build societies. Yep. And you would, and you desired them to follow a certain moral code. Would it not be in your interest to um, uh, directly inform them that you would like them to follow this moral code, and directly make your presence known to them? Would you? Would you? Ins- or would you, by the logic of Christianity, put it in the small book of this um, person you put on earth and hope this uh, book can spread and bring your ideals via that? Well, first of all, I don't think Christianity only... Well, Christianity doesn't assert that it uh, it only put the revelation of God in a small book. That's not what Christianity yeah. asserts, well, right? a big book, but... Well, not even book. a big book. Christianity asserts that... that the reality of God is clearly obvious by the actual creation and our intelligent ability to observe that creation. All right. So I'm going to read something here from the book of Romans in the Bible that actually I think addresses the thing you just mentioned. All right. Which is, you know, what are the different ways that the Christian God, or at least the Christian worldview, promotes the idea that God has revealed his reality to the world, and and this is how it's put by Paul. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine natures, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So before you retort, like, which I want you to retort, by the way, um, yeah. this is one of the ways, one of the multiple ways that God reveals himself to the creation Obviously, the, the Bible is not, can't be the only way because the Bible hasn't existed forever and there were humans before it was written. Yeah. So that would not be the only way. So one of them is, is that God apparently gave humankind the intellect and ability to observe its surroundings and see some of the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature by looking at the universe and the earth. Okay, that's one. Second, he says that there's a problem with the human... Uh, orientation toward rebellion yeah and we know that from the story of the fall which is that they don't honor god or give thanks but instead they tend to worship things that are created they tend to worship and specifically things that are around them birds things they make themselves um, because of this inherent futility yeah Um, and so that's one of the reasons that their vision is clouded 
Okay, then he goes on. What's a second way that he reveals is the one that we've been talking about. He says, for all the people who have sinned without the law, which is referring to the codified scriptures, yeah. the codified law, which is the a portion of the book you're talking about, yeah. will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So there's two groups of people, people who've never gotten the codified scripture and people yeah. who have. I mean, that's like how the Catholic treated heathens. They're like, they haven't had the opportunity to learn it. Yeah, so so it's not the hearers of law who are righteous before God, but the doers of law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have a law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of humans by Christ. So here's my point, is that there's, these are at least two ways that God reveals himself to humankind. One of them is by the creation and our, the intelligence we've been given to search out the creation so that we're all without excuse. At least every human being should be able to tell that the eternal power and some of the invisible is, attributes of God are obvious. That should be able to, because of not just the fact that they're obvious, but the fact that he gave us the ability to discern that obviousness. Yeah. Then the second thing is the conscience. The conscience is also a revelation of the deity because it, whether we have a codified scripture or not, our conscience gives us a sense of some of the rules of the cosmos and of the existence of a deity that's both benevolent and has wrath. Yeah. And so I think that those are two things. And then you can go into what are some of the other ways God's revealed in the Christian worldview. The Bible, a codified book. Yeah. Another thing is the presence, uh, an appearance of God in history, in all human right. form. Right. So you, you add up all these things, and there's, I think there's more. And then there's, there's, there's other ways. So then how did people know of God before all the codified scripture in Jesus? Well, through the conscience, through God speaking in different ways, so on and so forth. So I think it's deeper than just the Bible. I think it's deeper um, in the Christian worldview. I guess the assertion that, okay, so there's a lot of things that have been said, right? Yes. Um, I might forget a couple of the That's things. That's fine, yeah. But one of the assertions was that um, any person, it would be obvious to any person, the eternal, uh, the eternal power and might of God. Um, it is not that way. There are millions and millions of people in the world who that power is not obvious to them, and a lot of the um, powers and forces in the world can be explained by other means. So I don't believe that works. I don't believe that assertion works. I. Well, I think it. Well, it may not work. Well, that 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 passage I just read does make account for why people don't accept that. The rebellious nature. They're rebellious. Well, yeah. So that's. I mean, that's <laughs> the explanation. So, so they had. There is an explanation in the story. Now, you could say that's just kind of a a white flag of surrender, right? Like this is you can't argue against this because now understood. I understand that, but but you don't think the idea that we live in a transcendent universe that is massive and that we've never we've never been able to understand where almost any of that energy or matter came from doesn't yeah. just naturally beg the question that something made it i think the like, idea 
I think the idea of a god is extremely plausible, but the idea of a uh, human god that we have written and developed, especially the Christian one, which has a lot of flaws and a lot of fallacies and paradoxes within its own text, um, there is a reasonable case to be made that we have not uncovered the truth of a god, if there is indeed one. Um, the rebellious nature clause, as you said, you know, m most atheists I know aren't believing in atheism just to rebel against the norm. They believe in it because they believe it's the most logical thing to believe in. Um, that's how I was for most of my life, and arguably still am. Uh, so that also does not really work well with how I understand the world and how I understand people. That text, a lot of it, just does not work well with my social interactions. Well, social interactions, yes, but I think it, it, it does paint the idea that um, it does present a storyline of a meta-narrative of God made human beings, they fell and rebelled against his command or multiple of his commands, and now they would rather create their own reality, whereas it's still pretty obvious that something more powerful than us is behind the universe because we certainly aren't powerful enough to create a universe so something more powerful than us. Now, there, I don't think there is a viable explanation in science or anything for where that power comes from because science yeah. doesn't even understand any of the basic forces in terms of where they come from. I think generally there's just not a viable explanation. I mean, just ignoring the science part of that, you know, is something so beyond our understanding, so beyond our realm of existence. You know, the entire universe is quite big um, that we will never be able to know. And I think uh, I'm pretty sure we've both made that clear that, you know, this is something we're just arguing that is all theoretical anyways. Um, it's all what we think is most plausible. Uh, I don't know if any of it can be 100% certain. Well, not 100% certain scientifically, yes, but we can be 100% convinced. Fair. You can be 100% convinced of something that, you're, that can't be proven scientifically. Yeah. I mean, I'm 100% convinced or 99.9% .9 convinced at least of a lot of things that science can't even touch. Yeah, fair. Like the fact that my wife loves me, I'm super convinced of it, but there's no way to scientifically prove it. Yeah. She literally could be acting, <laughs> right? There's no way to scientifically prove that my wife loves me, just that simple idea. Yeah. And so I think in that realm of recognizing that my wife loves me, I have all kinds of evidence I've formed in my brain based upon her actions, but I can't be certain that her motives are love. Yeah. whatever I would define those motives to be because I don't know her motives. And I, I, I have personal experience of being around people and married couples where one person really seems to love another person that I find out they don't love them and have been having an affair on them for 10 years. Yeah. So why couldn't that also be my wife? It could be my wife. I don't know. Yeah. I don't monitor all of her time and all of her energy. So in that sense, I think it's rational. In that sense of conviction... Yeah, I found it, and you may not have, I found it rational, more rational and more plausible to believe that there's a deity behind the power and the creation of the universe than that, there's that, that, than that chance. Because I don't have any other framework in my existence for viewing yeah. chance as a decider of such order. Possibly. You know, um, so like, so that I think there is something rational about it. And, and the fact that most humans in history have had that same rational conclusion and that atheism is still a huge minority and will continue to be, in my opinion. Yeah. That's a prediction. I can't prove yeah. it. Yeah. It means that there's something to that. Yeah. Um, 
lately I've come to the personal belief that there is a deity, mainly based off the fact of the uh, transcendent moral code. That is one thing that if there is a unifying code in the world, it is hard to say that there wouldn't have to be a moral code giver behind it because otherwise there's no purpose for this code. Um, And that's one thing that humans have uniquely compared to other animals. Other animals, many of them share some of some of our transcendent ideals. You know, there's some animals which have monogamous loving relationships. Sure. Um, There, but none of them have like as complex of a moral code as we do, not even close. And, um, my reasoning for believing that is that there must be some transcendent consciousness behind us. Now, there is the idea, which I've been, I was thinking about last night, actually, that perhaps that consciousness isn't a god, and it's just we're all interconnected. All of our souls and spirits are somehow interconnected in a way we can't understand. And that is why we have this universal or mostly universal idea of how things are. Um, I do agree the idea that there's no deity and there's no spirit and that like purely scientific understanding of the world is flawed. Sure. Uh, I 100% agree with that. You know, as you said, science is limited in many ways. My main issue, as um, previously stated, is with um, the cultural gods we have created uh, with Christianity. A big part of it, you know, I can under, I can possibly get into, you know, the God of Christianity because it seems entirely plausible. But, um, for example, the resurrection, that is an event which a lot of it seems kind of like a human fairy tale. Uh, it doesn't, I, it doesn't seem to have much self-affirming evidence. There's not really, it doesn't really, um, while the God, many other cultures believe in a God, uh, not many other cultures share the idea of a, you know, resurrected human being who is full God, full human, all that. Um, and as well as many of the tales within the Bible, uh, you know, for example, the Great Flood mm-hmm. and all of that, that doesn't really jive well with other cultures either. So even if the God in the Bible could possibly be a real God, which is entirely plausible, I think the entire idea of Christianity and things outside of that are up for a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, oh, certainly. Like, I mean, you, you, you do know that there's a lot of other societies that are completely outside the Judeo-Christian history or Western society that have flood narratives. Yeah. That's a that's a real, I mean, that's we're not the only flood narrative. Great yeah. Great flood narrative. Well, there's also many cultures which don't have any such narrative. That's correct. China is a good example. That's one of the oldest civilizations in the world, and there's no real narrative at all like that, besides the occasional local lo- local river flooding, which caused a huge problem for sure. the local community. Yeah, understood. But, I mean, if the Great Flood were true, there's not many people alive after it. So it would, <laughs> yeah. you, would, you would imagine there would be. But, I mean, I don't want to argue the flood. That's kind of a moot point in a lot of ways. But, but I think the resurrection is interesting because the only counter evidence I'd give you to the resurrection is that um, the resurrection is a purpo- it's a purported historical event, whether you believe it or not. It's a purported historical event. It's not a. Yeah. Uh, there's actual people in actual history who claim to have witnessed it. Yeah. Like that's factually true. I think we could verify that. Yeah. So. So it's not it's not like a myth. Where people are not even really sure. No one's actually claiming to have witnessed it. We're not even sure if anyone's claiming to have witnessed a myth. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. 
people claim to witness to see the resurrected Jesus after he was dead for three days. So there's yeah. only a few theories you can really have of whether or not it wasn't true. You can either not believe the testimony or you could believe that he didn't really die. There's all kinds of different theories of what could have happened, right? We could go through yeah. seven different theories, 10 different theories, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's a great, it's conspiracy by the disciples. It's the, yeah. somebody hid the body, whatever we could come up with. But my point is, is that what makes it notable is that you have a dude who claimed to be a deity who claimed he would rise from the dead, who died, people claimed to see him rise from the dead. All the notable, all of the notable people save one who claimed that he rose from the dead actually were martyred. And we have historical records of those martyrdoms, were martyred for the idea that he rose from the dead. So they literally, if they lied about it, they carried a lie to their own death at a younger age than they would have normally died. Yeah. And then you add the fact that nobody has persuasively disproven the resurrection in the face of a large amount of witnesses that claim to have seen it. So there is, there is some self-affirming evidence of the resurrection in so much as it's a claimed historical event that has stood the test of time and history in terms of the number of people that believe it. So it's, it, yeah. is the, it is the biggest conspiracy theory ever created, if it is false. Possibly. The thing is, when we're talking 2,000-year-old history... There are a lot of other events which a lot of people would bat an eye at, which appear to, which many people reaffirm seeing, many historians reaffirm seeing, but don't really sound likely. For example, a campaign happening about 80 years before Jesus was born in, uh, near, near Carthage, two Roman historians claimed the army fought a dragon there, or something similar to a dragon. Um, most historical accounts say the Emperor Trajan was hit by a lightning bolt while riding his horse into battle. Um, you know, these are stories which uh, they spread really well because they're intriguing stories, which the Jesus story is intriguing, undoubtedly. But just because there are multiple eyewitness accounts and multiple writings off this story does not really mean much to me because most of this era, there are multiple accounts. Um, if it was, if, if, for example, we had like some record, um, some like Roman historical record. That well, we do have a record. The Bible is a record. Well. It's written by multiple people who all claim to have seen the same thing. By a Roman historical record, the, the, they recorded everything. The Roman bureaucracy was absolutely massive. If perhaps we had some record of it, I. You also agree they were a massive persecutor of Christians, however. Yeah. Well, massive persecutor of anyone who would not sacrifice. That's to like our saying gods. that's almost like saying, "Why don't we have a better history in the 1700s of black poets?" You know, I mean, I, it's 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 like I I resist that, and here's why I resist it because I think you committed the logical fallacy of false analogy. Here's why: because you you brought up a historical event that has very little at stake, right? It's a cool story; people believe it, but the difference in that narrative is when Jesus was proclaimed to have rose from the dead, it was a short amount of time after that that people were being martyred for that fact. Yeah. And that Christianity was literally taking over the Roman Empire in as short as three centuries, four centuries, when there was still a lot of relational connectedness to the people who saw, claimed to see the resurrection. There was an actual place where Jesus was supposedly buried. There, was a, there, were, there were all kinds of people that were around when his death happened. Yeah. And, and, and furthermore, it became like a powerful religion that completely hinges on his resurrection. Yeah. 
and not just a powerful religion, but people worshipped this human being as a deity. So saying there's no evidence and comparing it to a story that has no like force and power like that, like to say like there were millions of Christians within a couple centuries, two generations, three generations, yeah, who are willing to be martyred and thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions in order to believe this, that shows that it was a... Di- no one had succeeded, even though the entire empire was trying to stamp out Christianity for a couple hundred years. No one had succeeded in persuasively falsifying this lie. That shows that there was... It's either a phenomenal conspiracy or there might have been some kind of manner of truth to what happened. Perhaps. It certainly had to have been a massive conspiracy. I I do... You make a lot of good points. Um, I guess one principle that's kind of always good to live by is, especially when we're counting ancient history, when there's smoke, there's some type of fire. Correct. So there might be some elements of truth to the story. Um, and you are entirely correct. Yeah. The, the conviction of which people died for this is impressive, if it was indeed false. So, pra- yeah, you're correct. I concede to that. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's call it a day here because we're getting longer than most people would listen, even though we're having a ton of fun. Um, <laughs> All right. And, yeah. and we're really enjoying it. We're almost at like an hour and a half, hour 40, so I just don't want to keep it too long. But we should probably oh, yeah. have a follow-up podcast and maybe talk about some different ideas and happily maybe we'll have a different a different angle so hey but i want to thank you i had a great time i think there were a lot of cool things ventured here yeah thank you a lot of good disagreements a lot of good agreements Um, yeah so with that we're gonna sign off everyone all right ciao we hope you all join us on the next podcast where we'll have another great interview in the meantime go out grab a conversation and seek to settle the matter.